0: Bloomberg Chief Washington Correspondent Kevin Cyrilli, host of Bloomberg Sound On, has been traveling with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Kevin spoke to the secretary in an exclusive interview from Jamaica. Kevin started by asking the secretary about Iran-backed Hezbollah finding a foothold in South America.
2: When you see uh, the scope and reach of what the Islamic Republic of Iran regime has done, you can't forget they tried to kill someone in the United States of America uh, they've conducted assassination campaigns in Europe. This is a global phenomenon. When we say that Iran is the leading destabilizing force in the Middle East and throughout the world, it's because of this terror activity that they have now spread as a cancer all across the globe. This past
3: week, as you've traveled the world, we started in Germany and Berlin, where you met with world leaders, including German Chancellor Angela Merkel. You talked, I'm um, sure you talked about Iran, but as you know, Europe has not always followed the same strategic route as the United States when it comes to Iran. Did your meetings with European leaders move the needle in that direction at all?
2: Yes, sir. Look, we've been clear. We've had a different view on the right way to proceed, to ensure that Iran never gets a nuclear weapon, that their missile program is contained, and that this terror regime we were just talking about is pushed back. Uh, they've never wavered from the shared objective. they just had a different view about, about how to proceed. But if you've seen what Iran has done, even in the past few weeks, it's nuclear extortion. They're now threatening to leave the NPT. So I did. We, I talked with my European counterparts while I was there. They have now uh, taken a step under the JCPOA to in, invoke the dispute resolution mechanism. I think not only they, but the world can now see that this rogue regime has no intention of complying with the central tenets of what that agreement contained and the world must unite to ensure that Iran never has a nuclear weapon. I saw President Macron say that yesterday. I know he means that. now. We need to work together to achieve it. So when
3: you say they have no intention, then then how do you get Tehran to go to the United Nations, to come to the United Nations, to work with the international community, aside from the sanctions and, and the various military response options?
2: Ultimately, the people of Iran will get what they so richly deserve a regime that behaves in ways that are consistent with the value sets of the Iranian people. In the end, the Iranian people will demand their government. You see it. You see it in the protests. You see it when they walk around American flags that were put down by the Islamic Republic's leadership in an attempt to show they could show pictures of Iranian people walking over American flags. And in fact, people go out of their way not to do that. Uh, This isn't about Iran versus the United States. This is about a regime that has treated its own people terribly. The world can see it. It's a regime that even now, the IAE is trying to figure out how nuclear material got to places that the Iranian leadership said it would not be. Uh, And So this is a global risk. President Trump started his remarks uh, the night uh, after uh, an American response by saying, Iran will never have a nuclear weapon It is our primary purpose. Um, but we have a broader set of objectives here. We just want them to behave like a normal nation and re-enter the society, the community of nations.
3: And in, in traveling with you all week, I mean, I'm struck by just the, the range of, of the hotspot issues around the world that are going on. And back home, the only thing that they're talking about is impeachment and the Senate impeachment trial. Did that come up at all in your conversations with world leaders? And has the Senate impeachment trial endangered US interests and reputation around the world?
2: You know, Kevin, it it hasn't come up today, except where I received a question at a press conference about it, so it came up.
3: And you said you would testify. Uh,
2: Yeah, I've said consistently, if the the law required me to testify, I I would do so. Uh, You know, it hasn't come up. It almost never comes up. In meetings with my counterparts, there's too many important things going on in the world. America is too close a partner. Today, with countries in the Caribbean region here in Kingston. Uh, They care about so much that we do. They're such good friends and allies. Uh, they, They see the noise in Washington, but it is not something they would think in the time that we have between us that they would raise. And
3: House Democrats are saying that Rudy Giuliani orchestrated a shadow foreign policy. And can you assure diplomats serving overseas all around the world in dangerous places that that's not the case?
2: Yeah. The foreign policy we were executing then is the same foreign policy we're executing today with respect to Ukraine. It's an important country. It sits at this crossroads. It's under enormous pressure from Russia. President Trump has taken actions to counter Russia that President Obama refused to take. Uh, We've provided defensive systems for the Ukrainian people so that they can defend themselves. We've supported this new leader, uh, uh, President Zelensky, in his efforts to stamp out corruption and to build his democracy. We're continuing to do that. Uh, Our policy with respect to Ukraine has been set on the fundamental principles of uh, reducing the footprint of corruption and helping the Ukrainian people build up a democracy while under threat from the Russians in the east and southeast. You
3: have said that you look forward to going there, that you have other uh, issues that you want to discuss with them. Or is that still the case?
2: Yeah, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there before too long. I, I, I had a trip planned, and then we had an issue arise in the Middle East that I had to attend to. Uh, while that issue is not behind us, there's still a lot of work to do there.
1: And that is our Chief Washington Correspondent, Kevin Cirilli, speaking with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh, Kevin has been traveling with the Secretary of State, as he noted, on this sort of whirlwind Mm -hmm. tour of the world. Uh, They spoke today in Jamaica, obviously very much on the news, very much on the impeachment news. Ukraine, obviously, is right in the sphere of influence that the Secretary of State uh, plays into, so him saying that he will make a trip there uh, before too long, given its importance.
0: And a reminder that there are some kind of big major foreign policy issues that are still out there, right, and that have been kind of plaguing certainly this administration uh, for some time, so we'll see where that goes. We do want to talk a little bit about energy. Uh, It's been an interesting market to watch, and I think it's timely, I think, about the launch of our green.
1: Not interesting if you're in it. (laughs) If you're long. If you're shorting. If you're short, it's great.
0: Um, But it's interesting in a week where Davos is all about climate change, and we are seeing the energy space certainly be disrupted by alternative energy. It was the worst performing sector, major industry sector in the S&P 500 uh, last year, and it's continuing uh, to be at the bottom of the pack in uh, 2020. Ryan Kelly has to deal with all of this and find the opportunities. He's Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Hennessy Funds. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Studio. It's not easy right now. Ryan, is Ryan, it?
1: sitting here thinking. If I wanted to know all that, I just would have stayed <laughs> at home in Chapel Hill. Thanks I'm, very much. I, Can I, I have, have my, my freeze my butt off to uh, <laughs> get a recitation of how bad the market is? Where's my therapy there session? Too. Yeah. No,
0: but I mean, running a gas um, and utility, our gas utility fund, not easy. Um,
4: it's it's actually going okay. It's 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 confusing. Um, certainly, if you're talking just about the overall energy sector about oil, about natural gas prices, those have all plummeted. Uh, Energy is pretty tough last year, obviously, as you just alluded to. Um, The natural gas side has actually been doing pretty well in one regard. Because of these low prices, it's very good for the end customer. It's very good for the natural gas distribution companies. Mm. It's very good for the utilities. And our fund focuses on uh, utilities in general and natural gas utilities specifically so what we have is that because we've had so such uh, affordability uh, abundance accessibility of natural gas for many years here uh, it means actually that natural gas utility utilities are doing pretty well
0: and the fund is up about 2.8 percent in the past month so at the mm. beginning of the year uh, last year, it was up about 2.5%. Performance, though, do you feel like it's not where you'd like it to be?
4: Yeah, performance could have been better. Overall, for the whole year last year, the fund was up 21%. The S&P, of course, up 31%. That's a, a big laggard. Um, and uh, I think that what's going on is that we also have some more, some larger um, major pipeline companies that move natural gas around the country. They're related both to oil and natural gas, so there's uh, issues there. That's been holding us back. And
0: forgive me, I think I said 2.5% last year, and I did just mean year-to-date, right. Oh, said, year-to-date, yes, yeah, yeah okay, but, but as yeah. you said, it was double-digit gains last year.
4: Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, and interestingly, though, when you just look at the fundamentals of the companies, um, the uh, utility space, for the last three quarters has been, has had the highest growth in earnings out of any of the sectors, which is pretty, pretty yeah. crazy. This year, it's ex- or this quarter on a year-over-year basis, it's expected to be up 19% on an EPS point of view. When which is not
1: the, the sort of growth that we're seeing elsewhere in the market right. to, yeah. to be sure. Well, yeah. let's talk about some of those names. Uh, yeah. One literally close to home, Duke Energy. Uh, tell us about that.
4: Yes. Uh, well, I think that uh, a couple ways that you can play this, this space is, is to buy the bigger utilities. Mm-hmm. Utilities have a real opportunity now to switch from um, more uh, traditional fossil fuel type uh, sources to renewables. Uh, Duke, Duke Energy D-U-K, uh, is in the process of doing that. They have very lofty goals of transforming themselves over the next 30 years, and I think there's going to be a nice long runway for that company. It's also a nice large company, $70 billion in right. market cap. A pretty good PE compared to peers, so I think that there's some opportunity. I think there.
1: people forget like how massive that that
0: the company dividends. is. Oh, and, oh I uh, thought you were saying I was looking at the dividend. It's almost four percent. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
4: so <laughs> dividend yields are a big part of the utility play. Um, and and
0: how, you know, it's interesting. I do think about these big utilities and the transition from um, you know traditional fuels, if you will, or fossil fuels to alternatives. I mean, how. 20 years is that it takes 20 30 years
4: decades decades decades. i mean they have because of
0: the infrastructure build out
4: because of the infrastructure and you know one thing i'd maybe like to talk a little bit about is that this future energy complex that we're looking at is probably going to be predominantly renewables and natural gas Mm -hmm. and that's some of the debate that's going on now and i think some of the misinformation that's out there is that natural gas is very important part of all of this right Um, we've gotten to uh, uh, lost 2% in greenhouse gas emissions last year because natural gas has been replacing coal in large-scale power plants. So um, this is a decades-long process to get to more renewables. About 12% or so of our overall energy is produced from renewables right now. Uh, It could get to 20s to even 30% over time, but it's going to take a lot to get there. Why is it, you don't think there's an
0: urgency? I've just got to push a little bit with climate change. We only have about 30 seconds, but I do feel like that there's an urgency all of a sudden. Maybe it's the fires in Australia or California or what have you, but I mean, I feel like the clock is ticking.
4: I think there is an urgency. I think that we're getting rid of coal. I think that we're producing a lot less uh, energy out of oil. Mm -hmm. Those are two great things, but I think that um, the amount of infrastructure you'd have to change in order to go straight to renewables is phenomenal. In fact, we'd be hurting the environment until we got there. So we need to do it a little bit more at a measured pace. All right.
1: We're going to leave it there. Great stuff. Good to catch up with you. Ryan Kelly, Senior Vice President, Portfolio Manager for Hennessy Funds, looking after the Gas Utility Fund, one to watch for sure. Wow, a bold call for the walk in music for this song, but it is all about the shorts. Just ask Elon Musk. He is the subject of this week's cover story. It's all about Tesla and those shorts. For the moment being proven dramatically wrong dana hull penned the story she covers the company day to day and this is just an amazing step back story about everything going on there she joins us from our 960 studio in san francisco joel weber the editor of the magazine he's here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio dana first of all congrats on this story it's such a great read you know carol and i got to read it uh ahead of it over the weekend as it was sort of in process and it's just such a tale in many ways that captures the spirit of where this company is. Tell us what you set out to do.
5: Sure. Well, I've been covering Tesla for quite a quite a long time at this point, and unfortunately uh, for my mental health, spend a lot of time on Twitter, which is really where the Tesla conversation takes place. I mean, it is the water cooler for this company. Elon tweets, the fans tweet, the shorts tweet, and you know, over the past couple of years, I started seeing this Tesla Q hashtag more and more. It really kind of accelerated uh, after the Solar City buyout, and uh, and then kind of erupted in 2018 with the whole go private debunking. And I just sort of tried to figure out well, okay, who is Tesla Q? Who are these guys? And like, there's so many different characters. Um, But when Tesla filed a restraining order against Skabushka, I sort of found my character and just tried to spend as much time as possible understanding really what his motivation was and i think what's what's really fascinating is that you know a lot of these people are not actual short sellers some of them are just skeptics and they really don't buy the kind of mythology around musk that has been created
6: Skabush
5: what Skabushka Who is that Dana so Skabushka, uh, his real name is Randy Pothy. He is a graduate student in Ann Arbor. Uh, he's a fascinating uh, guy. He speaks five languages. He's getting a doctoral dissertation in Asian languages and culture. But he grew up in Fremont, which is where Tesla has its factory. And in 2018, when a lot of uh, people were questioning the ability of Tesla to manufacture its Model 3, he was in this rare position to actually check things out because you know his parents still live in Fremont. So he started tweeting out these pictures of production that people took very seriously. I mean, you would see on the Tesla fanboy forums, you know, all these messages like Skabushka's production numbers. And they were remarkably accurate. And uh, so he just sort of became well, this intriguing figure.
0: Well, intriguing. And didn't you actually talk to us about the first time you reached out to him, danica because I think this is interesting, too. I mean, he had information, right? He was tracking this company that to some extent could be helpful.
5: Oh sure. Well, I mean, so you know, a lot of short sellers do a lot of research, but right. a lot of them are, are based in New York, and they're and they're you know fantastic in in terms of like digging into financials and filings, and you know they look at things on the on the balance sheets. Kabushku was actually someone who was clearly like going to the factory every day, or had a bead on what was happening at the factory. And I I live in the Bay Area, and so there was this whole thing where you know, it was clear that Tesla was building some kind of new tent to house its mm-hmm. production line. I kept hearing from employees, oh, you know, Elon's building a tent out back. So um, and at the same time, Skabushka was sort of posting these photographs. So I was uh, actually at the Fremont BART station looking at this tent and I wasn't positive if I was looking at like the new tent or an old tent. And so I, I sent him a picture and I was like, am I looking at the right <laughs> thing? And, and he confirmed it. And I really I mean, I was, you know, legitimately trying to kind of cultivate him as a source. I asked him if he wanted to meet, but he always declined and I didn't meet him until much later.
6: So talk to us more about Tesla Q, because uh, that is like they're on Twitter. They are sort of amazing in sort of this hive mind ability to kind of look at Tesla and Elon from all these different angles. And they've actually impacted the stock over time. But yet life has gotten very expensive for short sellers of late as Tesla's stock has sort of started to soar. Uh, What uh, what do you make of where where Tesla Q stands now? And what are they saying about what could happen in the year to come?
0: Especially on a day. Right. As you know, Dana, right. We saw Tesla market cap 100 billion surpassing VW for the first time. That's, that's a real, real number. Yeah,
5: that's a real psychological psychological milestone, sure. Well, I guess I would say that, you know, once you sort of, I mean, a lot of folks within Tesla Q, I mean, they, they view Musk through the lens of fraud or fabrication or a cult of personality. And once you see him through that lens, it's very difficult to kind of be moved from that. Just like, you know, the fans who see him as like... You know, our great hope for for solving climate change. I mean, they will not be moved either. So it's very it's a very bifurcated community. But I think you know, short sellers would probably say, or yes, the stock is on a tear, but the, but it's completely divorced from fundamentals. And you know, just because the stock is high, doesn't mean that the company is ever going to be sustainably profitable. Clearly, Tesla reported a profit in the third quarter. They're going to report earnings next week. But you know, will will the company ever have a profitable year? Like that that remains to be seen.
1: And why ultimately is this stock, this company so binary? You know, we and I know we ask you this all the time, mm-hmm. but I keep coming back to this idea that there's essentially no one who's like,
5: yeah, Tesla, it's all
1: right. Yeah, like it just doesn't happen. So sure. why is it?
5: I, I think it's like a two for one. Right. So you can short Apple, you can short Netflix, you can short Amazon, but people aren't really like shorting Tim Cook or Bezos or or you know like they're they're really I mean this is really about Elon and Elon himself trolls the short sellers all the time and so it's become this long running war that is very personal between both sides and it's people are people are shorting the company because they fundamentally do not believe. You know, Elon and the hype that he has created around himself. Um, and so they, they fundamentally have have fu- issues with him as the chief executive and with the company. The go private thing was just kind of like the icing on the cake. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> once that happened, like Tesla Q just doubled down and they will not be, mo- you know, they will not be moved. Now, to be clear, some of the, I mean, pe- everyone has a very different trading thing. Some some people are swing traders, they trade every day. Some are puts, some are options. I mean, some some people, like, they might consider themselves a short, but they might not have an active short position at this moment. I mean, I you know that gets into like everyone has a fundamentally different strategy when it comes to how they trade.
6: Okay, so Dan, I'm closing question for you. You cover Elon Tesla so closely. This was a kind of a long, longer term story that uh, that you know is your first cover for the magazine. What did you learn?
5: That's a really good question. I mean, I guess what I learned was just how kind of diverse this community of Tesla Q is. Mm. I mean, to be honest, when I first saw Skabushka's tweets, I thought that this guy was either a supplier or a contractor or an employee or a former employee. Like, I I never would have guessed in a million years that he was a graduate student. You know, I I thought for sure this guy must have some kind of in with the company. But his research was so profoundly good. And then uh, when I met him, I was like, wait, you're like a graduate student writing a doctoral dissertation? (laughs) You're uh, you're just like a guy. Yeah, (laughs) Just like a guy. Exactly. (laughs) It's a
1: great story, a must-read the cover story uh, in this week's magazine. Joel Weber, thanks to you, Editor. Bloomberg Business Week at Dana Hall. She wrote the story. Tech reporter for Bloomberg joining us from San Francisco. I'm going Coming to tweet up. it
0: out right now as we speak.
1: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on
2: Bloomberg Radio.
0: Certainly one of the big stories uh, that continues to be on everyone's radar is about uh, the respiratory virus over in China. China ramping up its efforts to contain it. Uh, the virus so far killing at least 17 people, infecting hundreds as the outbreak has spread beyond uh, Asia. China state broadcaster CCTV, heard Charlie talking about this earlier, reporting that the death toll has nearly doubled from a previous total, as I mentioned, of nine. Uh, And there were two preliminary positive reports of this virus in hong kong another diagnosis in the u.s patients under examination in mexico and russia so while it feels somewhat contained we are hearing more and more about the spread let's get the latest on this bloomberg news health science and medical technology reporter michelle cortez joining us on the phone from minneapolis so michelle how should we as investors view this and i don't mean to be so uh, clinical about it but we have seen it impact the market so Is it contained? Are we getting a better control of it? Uh, What are you
7: hearing? It is very much a a situation that's in flux. We really don't know, especially in the beginning. People are reporting out what's happening, and the numbers are increasing dramatically every time we talk to anybody in China or public health officials speak out. The good news is is it doesn't look like it's going to be as severe as SARS or maybe even MERS or maybe even the seasonal flu. On the other hand, it's so early and the case rates are increasing so quickly. There's no guarantees.
1: And Michelle, you know, one of the things that some of our guests were saying earlier on in the show is that there was a sense as we've talked to investors that, people are sort of on it you know that this wasn't allowed to spread literally or figuratively even the sort of the hysteria is probably not the right word but you know this notion of you know maybe the institutions are sort of doing the things they're supposed to do you know this better than we do what's your sense of the response and the response time here
7: well, you're absolutely correct. China has been so forthright, especially in comparison with the SARS outbreak from 2002 and 2003. The important thing for investors to keep in mind is, of course, it is not the actual severity of the outbreak itself. It's it's the response that everyone takes in order to contain it. So we're seeing like just breaking news right now. Wuhan has shut everything down. They're not letting people in and out of the city. They're not letting people on buses. You can't fly out. They've shut it all down. So if they can do that, and that's you know 11 million people, it's not small, but that's going to affect certain commerce there. If that spreads within China, then that's where you're starting to get your economic hit coming from. On the flip side, there are no signs from the public health piece that things are happening. We're not seeing human to human transition in the second and third and fourth situations, right? So it's not like we're seeing someone who's sick who then gets their health care worker sick and then their healthcare worker gets someone sick. It's very much more contained than that currently. And the virus seems to be not mutating an awful lot, so that's also good. But again, from the business perspective, they're just now starting to shut things down and we don't know how far that's gonna go.
0: Well and I think we all, you know, can remember SARS, right? And what was it, I think Killed 800 people in a, in a short period of time, just a few months. So I think that's our reference point. Um, safe to say one would hope that the world has learned something by that and it, and that we are quickly, you know, running to contain this. I mean, there is a
7: difference. Right. Well, there's a significant difference. I mean, the situation with SARS is we didn't, people didn't know what to do. Not only do we know what to do and they're taking that action quickly. I mean, there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that just one person on an airplane with SARS infected 19 other people around them just in one flight. Now they're not letting people get on a plane if you have the fever. So, right. you know, so, so yes, we're definitely much better than we were.
0: Just quickly, there's a, a story on the Bloomberg, too, that talks about a potential vaccine to prevent the spreading of the virus, uh, maybe moving into early stage human testing in the next three months. This is uh, from the NIH, uh, their infectious disease chief. Um, you know, we're not quite there. It takes some time, but at some point we might have uh, a way of controlling this.
7: Absolutely true. Another thing that's very interesting, people are moving aggressively into that. Moderna is the company that's working on NIH with that. But there's other companies as well. So that is a, you know, a positive, negative thing. We, you know When these bad things happen in our world, we do get an infusion of interest and effort and money into some of these public health efforts like ramping up vaccines and we are starting to see that but early days that first studies in man in three months it'll take years before it actually is widely available
1: great context thank you so much michelle cortez health science and medical technology reporter for bloomberg joining us on the phone from minneapolis
7: how
1: about you let me drive oh no
6: no 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 who's gonna drive you home
0: It is time for the drive to the close. Oliver Portia is back with us. Chief Market Strategist at Bruderman Asset Management. Over $1.6 in assets under management. Uh, based in Connecticut, right?
8: Well, Midtown, New York, oh, actually. No. I live in Connecticut. You so, live in Connecticut. You know, that's based in New he's York. He's a Connecticutian.
1: <laughs> Connecticut. <laughs> that's a big word on Bloomberg Radio. Uh,
0: in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio in New York. yeah, We kind of like those big words occasionally. Well, what... All right, I'm going to ask you, since you live in Connecticut, Connecticut real estate, we've been talking about the stories. Uh, it's been having a tough time. Ooh, like, yes. You gave me this <laughs> evil look.
8: Oh, my Lord. Uh, so, well, I bought my house in 2004, and it's worth less today than it was in 2004 by significant no margin. And it's not because I bought stupidly. Um, look, I think it's it's going to be ebb and flow. Right now, you're still going through the shock of GE having moved out, uh, Uh. in particular in Fairfield, which is where I live. Right. You've got the tax situation. You've got the fiscal state uh, of the state that's not particularly great, although it has improved significantly in the last couple of years in terms of reserves and everything else. Um, Look. You know, real estate has always been a long-term proposition. Uh, I know we've gone through cycles of flipping homes, uh, and we know where that ended in 2007, 2008. Right. So I'm not overly concerned about it on a long-term basis. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to can the state, like any state, right. uh, get businesses to come in, get investment going, and get people to want to live there. I think they've got plenty of people who want to live there. It's a question of affordability and jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: exactly. It does come down to that, so. right? That's the mix. Um, thank you for doing that. I was just curious since we've been talking a lot about it. Hey, let's also um, talk about the market. You walked in and we're like, you were like, we're off to a strong start. Um, and I'm like, wait a minute, You know, kind of, do you buy it? I mean, you think the fundamentals are there, Oliver?
8: I think they're generally there, yes. Okay. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, while everybody likes to talk at how well the market stocks did in 2019, If you go back to October 1st, the S&P is only about 10% higher. So you have to take into account that sharp dip that we saw in the fourth quarter of 2018. Also, a lot of the headwinds that we faced going into 2019 are now gone or about to be gone. Trade is looking pretty stable with regards to uh, UCMCA uh, having been done, as well as the phase Phase one one. trade deal with uh, China. Uh, It's unlikely that you're going to see a lot of more trade, hard trade talk out of the administration or certainly not action against Europe during the election year because they just don't want to rattle that cage. Uh, The Fed has effectively told us, hey, we're standing pat, we're not planning on doing anything this year, which incidentally also falls in line with what they like to do during election years. They don't like to be particularly active in election years. Right, And you've got an economy that's kind of puttering along. So you could take all of those things along with what's presumed to be probably somewhere around 5%, 6 7% earnings growth for the year because comp- uh, comparables are going to get so much easier this year than they were last year. Right. And there's reason for optimism.
0: What was earnings growth by the end of last year? What did we see last year? What were the numbers? I think
8: all in we saw a drop of about 2% year over year.
0: And yet the market um, rallied as Yeah, again,
8: forward expectations, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and so the expectation, and you, what you saw really is a strong rebound in the first quarter of 2019, nothing in the second and third quarter, right. and then another 10% yeah. rally in the fourth quarter as trade, Brexit, and interest rates became fairly clear in, towards this year. So... There are fundamental
1: justifications. All right. So let's talk about some names that you like in this current environment. Adobe is an interesting one to me, especially because the cloud, they're sort of playing in there. We talk about the cloud so much, but usually in the context of the big names, the Amazons, the Googles, and and more mm-hmm. recently, yesterday and today, IBM with, with yeah. Red Hat. Talk about Adobe in that context.
8: Well, Adobe to us has really been successful at moving to a subscription model which yeah. carries a higher multiple and profitability on a long-term basis. They've become a one-stop shop uh, for marketing, right? You can pretty much do everything with the, mobile, uh, the uh, Adobe suite of applications. And so when we look at that, we think that there's a tremendous amount of potential and in particular, while they've underperformed and it's been challenging, their enterprise software has got a lot of upside potential. So we like the stock and we think it's a category winner.
0: This stock is up over a thousand percent um, since the end of 2011. A thousand percent. Just year after year after year after gains. And
8: and we prefer buying strong companies that are up sharply than companies that we think are undervalued because something went wrong. Hmm. Right? Wait, Quali- say that again? We'd prefer to buy in an up market like we've seen over the last decade. Right. We would much rather pay and, and own a strong company that's performed very, very well than a company that we think might be undervalued because something's gone wrong. So
0: a forward-looking P.E. of 36 doesn't worry you?
8: It does not because as long as the growth is delivered, then we're in good shape. All yeah, right. this is just it, as you say. Just you look back to uh, even th- the
1: beginning of 2019, just a nice little steady uh, rise up. Talk to us about Bristol Myers Squibb. Obviously, a deal maker uh, in some ways. Is that what makes this a more attractive stock?
8: I- yes, in many ways it does. So, uh, a couple of things. If you think about healthcare companies as a whole, they have a huge problem as a sector, which is effectively declining revenues and profits because so much stuff is coming off patent. Right. That holds true for the industry. Some of them are executing better than others. In the case of Bristol Myers Squibb, they've bought CellGene and so they've effectively emanated their way out of their declining earnings and revenues. And we think that it's a strong management team. We like the balance sheet. We like the outlook. We think they're gonna do more strategic acquisitions, and as a result, we see a pretty strong path in the industry.
0: Right, and then you've got a dividend, almost 2.7% yes. on top of it all. Um, intuitive Surgical, ticker ISRG, for those who might have forgotten. Uh, we're talking about robotic surgery?
8: Robotic surgery, which is the wave of the future. Every year, when you look at that industry, more and more hospitals, and, and, and now even How outpatient How much is going services- on already? An enormous amount, but it's still just scratching the surface. And they, Intuitive is 10 years ahead of their nearest competitor in terms of their technology. So, again, if you believe that that's going to continue to grow, which we certainly do, right, uh, and be part of the landscape, then you want to own the category killer. And that's Intuitive right now.
0: Revenues up 19% year over year. Uh, earnings growth of about 5.6% year over
8: year. Yeah. All right. 30 seconds left. More. Yeah.
1: Big, uh, biggest worry about this
8: market right now. You don't sound worried. Well, the, the biggest worry is that economic data continues to deteriorate and so that we get into kind of April, May with very weak data and the 2 th- two to 3% GDP growth that is our base assumption doesn't come true and gets a one handle, yeah. that will be problematic for investors. Would
0: the Fed maybe move then?
8: I doubt it. Yeah. I think you'd have to see low ones or below one for the Fed to move. Especially in an election year, it feels like. All right. Oliver Portia is
1: Chief Market Strategist for Bruderman Asset Management up there in Connecticut. Gave us some good context on that. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Some really interesting ideas as we move deeper into 2020.